Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is episode number 38, being recorded on Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. Wishing the best for you. I know we're going back to, or at least some cities are starting to require mask wearing more often indoors, and apparently few enough people have, or enough people have not gotten vaccinated that they're starting to go a little stricter. Again, look, I can't tell you what to do, I uh, but hope you do whatever is best for your health, and I just hope so much of me wants to get back to normal as soon as possible, just because it's fair to everybody else. Um, a lot to discuss this week. First thing to discuss, I, I think, definitely would be everything that has happened with Simone Biles in the last, as I record this, in the last two or so days. Uh, so we're, we're going to talk about the Olympics. We'll talk about Simone Biles and the women's gymnastics team. We'll talk about USA men's basketball and their surprising loss to France in their opener. A little bit about women's soccer and a little bit about, bit about swimming, actually. As for... Sports here, stateside. We'll talk about Major League Baseball. We'll talk about the Pirates trading for at, trading Adam Frazier away. The Rays making a big deal for Nelson Cruz. The Mets trading for Rich Hill, and just a disgraceful weekend for the Yankee bullpen in Boston, uh, as well as the NFL. We'll talk about Aaron Rodgers returning to training camp, although it may not be a very long visit. The NFL changing their COVID protocol for this year. Michael Thomas and his injury to start the early part of the regular season. We'll talk about the SEC. We're going to talk about Texas and Oklahoma reportedly moving to the SEC and maybe even some more people, the, the alleged super conference. Uh, I'll go over, I'll, I'll go a little bit over the, the draft, the NBA draft for Thursday, the 29th. As I record this, uh, and I'll just go a little bit over the the top five picks. This is according to NBA.com. Their uh, their predictions for the top five picks, and then a good amount about the NHL this weekend. This week, in particular, the uh, a lot a lot of trades and a lot of free agent news. Talk about uh, Mark Andre Fleury. We'll talk about the NHL. Dra- we'll talk a little bit about the NHL draft. Rangers and Blackhawks making moves, and, and a lot of a lot of different things happening in the NHL this week. But we start with Simone Biles. Simone Biles, of course, the hero in the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio for the women's gymnastics team. She's she is only 24 years old. She is the face of perhaps the face of these entire Olympics. And even it's even tougher when you consider that we've waited an extra year for these Olympics. Simone Biles withdraws from the individual all-around portion of the gymnastics tournament. She had already dropped out of the team all-around in the middle of competition. It was, I believe it was Tuesday it was Tuesday morning here in the United States on the East Coast. I believe it was Tuesday night in Tokyo. So the she drops out from both of those. She drops out in between 
Team USA, give them a lot of credit. They finished with a silver medal in the team all around, in the team all-around portion, despite not being able to drop their lowest score, which was Simone Biles. Uh, ninth place qualifier Jade Carey will replace Biles in the finals of the individual all-around. Now, Simone Biles has qualified for the finals for all four remaining individual events. The vault, the uneven bars, the balance beam, and the floor exercise. And she may still participate in those competitions. That would be two-thirds of the competition. The, those finals, she is qualified for the finals for all of those. Something she did not even do in Rio in 2016. And remember, the Olympics are two weeks long. So the finals for those are between August 1st and 3rd. So she does have a little time to try to clear her head and try to decide what she wants to do. Team USA, again, give them a ton of credit because not only do they win the silver medal despite her dropping out in the middle of the team all-around event, she came. they came very close to defeating the, the ROC, I believe, I believe that stands for Russian Olympic Committee, which I, I believe came after the the whole doping with uh, the Russians a few years ago, so which is why it doesn't officially say Russia. But regardless, Team USA came very close to knocking them off for the gold despite loot missing Biles for about half that event. Biles, to her credit, stayed on the sidelines for the remainder of the team all-around competition after withdrawing. Uh, uh, one of the stars who emerged... From this team in the midst of Biles' absence was Jordan Childs, who had a great energy. She emerged with an excellent attitude. She was very fired up and did an outstanding impromptu job on the, on the uneven bars. That was supposed to be Bile, that was supposed to be one of Biles' events. She dropped out. Childs stepped in and did a great job. Biles said this was due to her mental health. It is nothing physical. She apparently forgot to do one additional full turn on her vault, which made it a, a kind of a difficult kind of a difficult landing. She lost some points. Um, and she's she's received a lot of praise, but she definitely will also receive a lot of criticism. Uh, I can only imagine how it is to keep your head to, to seriously, to keep a mental mindset while you're rotating and your brain is turning in midair. So I, I don't know. Biles is, she really is the face of the Olympics. I think that's fair to say. But again, in her defense, she's only 24 years old. And even if you're, even if you're 24, yeah, you may be, you know, old enough to serve in the military, old enough to vote, old enough to drink, live by yourself. But that's still a very young age, especially with how um, how how much longer we really take to I think develop to to further independence now. 24 is very young. And you know, I mentioned this few episodes ago, I believe, I mentioned everything that happened with Naomi, with Naomi Osaka dropping out. 
And, and like Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles is, you know, she's a kid. If you're 24, you're still, you're still kind of a kid. You're still figuring things out. And she's still human. Look, I, I hope she competes. I, I hope she competes in the individual events because one, because she's a great athlete for one. You want to be able to watch her fulfill her, get to get, fulfill her full potential. She's great for the Olympics. She's great for the country. She's great for sports. She has drawn a great following. And you want to see the very best compete. If you're not at 100%, some people will compete. There's been sort of a changing stance as to whether some people may compete if they're not at 100%. Well, physically for one, but mentally more so. I hope she competes. I think everyone hopes she competes, but I can't imagine uh, uh, what it's what it's like to be in that position. Look, I can't speculate as to what she's feeling, but I can tell you that, again, she's 24. I'm 22, and frankly, I, I'm, I get, you know, I get scared sometimes. I don't know what, what exactly is, what exactly is keeping her from competition at the moment, but I can tell you that I get scared sometimes. I, I've mentioned this before. And I, like, for example, I'm a little afraid of the world opening up again because you get used to that. You last 18 months or so, uh, or uh, however long, trying 16 months, you kind of get used to, you, you kind of get used to being home. You get used to being with people and now people are going out again. And, I don't know, you, complacency can kind of actually be nice at times. And I don't know if, I would think that's got to be hurting some people. Because you also have to remember, athletes in particular, because you also have to remember, even though they've been training to an extent, American athletes have also been in conditions the likes of which they haven't seen in a while. Because... I mean, Japan is, they don't have fans at these Olympics in Japan. The U.S. is much more heavily vaccinated, and even then we are obviously still having our struggles, but the U.S. The US is much more vaccinated than the majority of countries around the world. Japan, one of them. So, because of that, it's almost like it, what it was a year ago. That's almost what it seems like where you're just kind of closed off, once you get to Japan, uh, it's, it's different. It's different. It's, it's a feeling that you don't want to imagine, a feeling that is weird for you physically, of course, but a feeling that's especially strange mentally because you're so cordoned off from other people. And it's the, probably the first major travel that these people have really had in a while. Uh, look, I can't imagine what it's like to have the weight of the world on your shoulders, as Biles actually has. I think it's fair to say that that was, I'm pretty sure one of the quotes she mentioned, she, one of the quotes she said, I, I think it was something to the extent of, 
I feel like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. And to an extent, she's right. Although, even though gymnastics may not be the most popular sporting event, it may not be, you know, it's not basketball or something like that. It's, you carry a national pride. And with a country as widely known as the United States, it's on a worldwide stage. The eyes of billions, not millions, billions of people are watching you. And uh, yeah, it was tough. I watched a little bit of NBC's coverage of it, and yeah, I, I mean, I can only imagine what it's like. You have a camera in your face. You know that you are leaving. You know that you're you're having mental struggles, and you you have a camera in your face. Uh, look, I again, I, I don't know what it's like to to have that, to have the weight of the world on your shoulders, the weight of the entire hopes and dream, the hopes and dreams of an entire country on your shoulders, but. I've said for a while, we say, we say it about politics, but I've said for what, we we need to have empathy for each other in this country in particular. I um, Look, again, hope she competes, but although I am not the most athletic person, I could see myself if I was there, if I was in her shoes, I could see myself dropping out of the competition if I had to launch myself into the air and keep thinking while I'm in the air, and then carry the hopes of the United States on my shoulders in a sport where people are only going to see me every four years. It's not like I'm playing every night. I'm not competing every night. People are going to see me every four years, and in this case, five. So there's that added pressure. You've been training for a good portion of your life for this one event. You're putting all your eggs in one basket. And that's it. Now, look, I also think if she was going to drop out, at least of this event, I would I would hope she would try to consider maybe I could wait until the end of the event because it's, frankly, it's, it's true. It's, because, it's perhaps because she dropped out that they got silver instead of gold. Because it obviously shows there's a talented team, but... You know, again, she is the leader. So you'd figure, hopefully, hey, maybe I'll just stick around to the end of this event, and then I'll think things through. But if she really wasn't at 100%, then maybe she figured that they'd be better off without her. She didn't want to be a distraction. She didn't want to take them away, take their, take their eyes off the... Take their eyes off the prize, I guess. That's just one way to put it. So, I hope she comes back. I hope she does. I think we all do. Heck, even... It, look, the... The Russians against... The, the Russians in particular against whom, against whom they have the... the strongest competition, they probably want her back. You want, you want to beat the best. And Simone Biles is probably the best. But if your heart's not in it, then... That's that. But again, hope she does return. So speaking of struggles, at least on the floor, Team USA men's basketball loses to France, but then wins convincingly, 120-66 to over Team Iran. So in the game against France, they had a 7-point lead. Team USA had a 7-point lead with 3.30 to play. 
Meanwhile, Evan Fournier, this is not a team with a lot of NBA talent, which I think is the marker for these games. I, I mean, the Team USA has won the almost all of the men's basketball golds, but generally speaking, I would say NBA talent is where we classify classify the marker and the the peak. France does not have a lot of NBA players. U.S. has all NBA players, of course, but France does have a good amount. I think Batum's on the roster, and then Lakina, and Fournier really had Rudy Gobert and Fournier had a, had a very strong performance of twenty eight points. But still, you expect Team USA, no matter who they have, really, is so good that you expect them to walk all over everyone else. And that's even with, you know, this year, you know, LeBron's not there, Kawhi Leonard's not there, etc., etc., Chris Paul. I, a lot of these guys aren't there. But uh, one of the reasons, perhaps, why they lost this game and it's not an excuse, but Devin Booker, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday. Remember, this is a this is a year when the NBA Finals got pushed back. The NBA, the NBA, the Larry O'Brien Trophy was handed out in July. Devin Booker, Chris Middleton, and Drew Holiday had to travel pretty much straight from a very late NBA Finals to Tokyo. The Bucks Championship Parade was on Thursday. I believe these three guys, Booker, Middleton, and Holiday, despite being on two different teams, I believe they actually were on the same flight. So the Bucks championship parade was Thursday the 22nd. They fly to Japan on the 23rd, Friday. Parade's Thursday. They fly in Friday. They join the team late Saturday night, and they play their first game against France on Sunday. That's a that's a hectic, hectic weekend. Tokyo, you were flying pretty much halfway around the world, or pretty close to it at least. That's got to be, God, straight through? I don't know. I, and on top of that, you got to think, um, Milwaukee Championship Parade, I, I, there's no way there's a flight from Milwaukee directly to Tokyo. There, there's maybe a flight from Chicago to Tokyo, I would think, if anything. So you got to change two. You probably got to take two flights, and then if Booker, I would guess Booker was in Phoenix. I don't know. Maybe they all maybe they all flew from Milwaukee, but it's I don't. Know, that's a long flight. That's got to be. I would think it's got to be at least sixteen hours. Maybe I don't because I know New York to Hawaii. If you go straight through, is like twelve. So I, but it's madness. The jet lag, the fact that they even made that a close game with France is is remarkable because, again, you've got Kevin Durant and you got you know there's three guys out of a much larger roster, but the fact that they even made it close after that is impressive. Still not an excuse for the loss. The U.S. roster, as I mentioned, is far better than that of France, but you know it, it's there. We kind of should have seen this coming. You remember they went. They actually went 2-2 two and two in their exhibition games. And they fell to, in particular, one of them, a very good Australian team with uh, Patty Mills and a few other guys. 
But again, that's they, they are definitely better than all of these teams. So while they're not going to be, this team is not going to be the 92 Dream Team, where they're not going to run over everyone, they, they're still the team to beat. It's true. They still should be. A little more from the Olympics. Team USA women's soccer, despite being, again, heavily favored, falls to Sweden by a score of 3 to nothing. In case you don't know, Sweden actually knocked out the United States from the Olympics back in 2016. It was the first time ever that Team USA had finished below a silver medal. They finished in fifth place. Finished in fifth place in that tournament. And uh, this is their return. As for this actual match with Sweden, wasn't that... For 3 nothing? The, the stats are a bit misleading. Uh, they had the same amount of fouls. USA, the Team USA actually had a slight edge in terms of possession. They had 52% of the possession. Shots on goal were 9-5 Sweden. Shots overall were 17-13 Sweden. Not terrible. Team USA, uh, two of the goals they allowed were within the last 40 minutes. This was close for a while. They, I think it was Kristen Press, rang one off the pipe at one point. And Rose Laval nearly evened it at one late in the first half. Uh, so Team USA had its chances, just ultimately did not work out. They do advance to the quarterfinals of this tournament on the strength of a follow-up 6-1 blowout of New Zealand and a scoreless tie against an Australian team uh, with which they were tied in the standings at 1-1-1, and although Team USA had a better goal differential. So the U.S. finishes ahead of Australia. Australia gets in as uh, sort of the wild, one of the wild cards, sort of. So Team USA advances to the quarterfinals. They will take on a Dutch team that finished tied atop their group with Brazil at... 2-0-1 with 7 points. They tied Brazil 3-3 in their second match. In their first match, they dominated Zambia 10-3. And in their last match, they dominated China by a score of 8-2. So it should be a difficult road for Team USA. Of course, they're, they still have to be the favorite. But it is a difficult road indeed. The remaining teams, it'll be... The quarterfinals starting on Friday the 30th will have Canada and Brazil in the quarterfinal. Great Britain versus Australia. We'll have the Netherlands against Team USA. That'll be at 6 a.m. on the East Coast. And Sweden versus Japan. Uh, meanwhile, for the men, might as well uh, bring it up. You at Team USA not in it. But it'll be Korea versus Mexico. It's, well, really, I believe that's South Korea versus Mexico, Brazil versus Egypt, Japan versus New Zealand, and Spain versus the Ivory Coast. And one more thing to discuss before we wrap up our Olympic coverage here and head to a break, and that is the insane one-hour turnaround by Katie Ledecky. 
Katie Ledecky in her third Olympic Games with the U.S. women's swimming team. She had earned five golds in the previous in the previous two Olympics in 2012 and 2016, including at age 15 back in 2012. Uh, dominated with four golds in 2016 and one silver. This year, in the span of one hour, roughly, Katie Ledecky went from the worst finish in her Olympic career, fifth place in the 200-meter freestyle, to becoming the first ever winner of the women's 1,500-meter freestyle uh, in a little under 16 minutes. I'm still stunned that anyone can swim as strong as that for 16 minutes. Um, but she becomes the first woman ever to claim it. It was an, an event that did not exist for women in the Olympics until this year. So yet another milestone claimed for what someone who many believe to be the greatest female swimmer of all time. She trails only Jenny Thompson for most medals by any female swimmer, also most gold medals by any female swimmer. Jenny Thompson with eight golds, 12 medals in total over four Olympics, and Katie Ledecky with seemingly a lot to go, six golds in three Olympics. So that does it for our Olympic coverage. We'll take a break, come back, talk about some of the hot stove action. Well, not really a hot stove action because it's it's actually during the summer, but getting close to the trade deadline for the MLB and a few deals made already. Moving on to the MLB trade deadline. First off, the Pittsburgh Pirates trade Adam Frazier, all-star second baseman to the San Diego Padres. Pirates in return receive three prospects, San Diego's number five overall infielder Tucapita Marcano, which I think is just an awesome name. Right-handed pitcher Michael Miliano and outfielder Jack Stowinski. They also send cash to the Padres. Again, the Pirates, I think we kind of saw it in particular with um, that whole thing with Javi Baez. It just kind of really put into perspective how much of a mess they really are. It's like, you know, it's it hasn't been pretty for the Pirates the last... Five years. Think about how all, all the guys they traded, all the guys of whom they let go. Andrew McCutcheon was an MVP. A.J. Burnett near the end of his career. Pedro Alvarez, Starling Marte. They had, going back a little further, Nate McClouth, Ryan Domit, Freddie Sanchez, Russell Martin, Chris Stewart, Francisco Cervelli, Jamison Tyone. Now I'm just thinking of Pirates who played for the Yankees. Lyle Overbay, that's another one who actually played for the end. Lyle Overbay, I think Adam Lind, I'm pretty sure. Travis Snyder, Mark Melanson, Jason Grilly, who I believe is a Seton Hall. I believe went to Seton Hall. The list goes on and on and on. You think about how many, Charlie Morton, I mean, you think about how many really good players were on the Pirates and Sean Rodriguez, how many guys they have 
let walk and let go. Adam LaRoche, Jason, but well, if you're a Mets fan, you know, Jason Bay was terrible. When he was with Boston, he was pretty good. But Jason Bay, uh, Jason Kendall, uh, Ryan Giles, the Pirates have been a mess for a while. But knowing what the Padres have built out of their out of their minor league system, Fernando Tatis Jr. in particular, th- there's some promise there if they're able to get three prospects, no matter where they rank, from the Padres. So it's a good start, you would hope, if you're a Pirates fan. Meanwhile, Tampa Bay... Ra- oh yeah, Chris Archer. Let's remember that one. Oh, Austin Meadows. Austin Meadows. So speaking of Austin Meadows, Tampa Bay Ra- the Tampa Bay Rays trade their number 10 and number 17 ranked prospects for Nelson Cruz. Um, Nelson Cruz, who I think entering last night had 21 homers, 52 RBIs, which aside from aside from David Ortiz, I don't think I've ever seen anyone at age 40 with stats like those at this point in the season. There may be some other explanations for that, but won't go into that. This was a surprising deal I for me, because Nelson Cruz obviously doesn't have that many years left in his playing career. And on top of that, they're going to have to... I mean, there's some money you're going to have to spend there. I'd have to imagine this is going to be a rental. But really, this is not a Tampa Bay-like move considering they have the, I'm pretty sure they're the smallest market and the lowest payroll of any MLB team, even lower than the Oakland A's. So I don't, I don't know, maybe things would be different if Heim Bloom was still there. Now he's with Boston. But they're really going all in with that one. I will say it significantly improves the middle of their order because they're not, we, we know for a long time, they're not a great hitting team. That's not really their MO. But that'll improve the middle of the order, especially if and when they reach the postseason. Um, but really, a bit of a gamble for someone have hit, someone his age, uh, for, for how much they're paying, they really build a lot. I mean, with a team with a, with a payroll like that, you have to build through your, your minor league system, so trading two of their top 20 prospects is a bit of a risk. Not really a raised move, but we'll see if it works out for them. The New York Mets, meanwhile, trade for Rich Hill, a guy who it seems has been playing, I think, since the Crusades, um, but somehow is still effective. I don't know how. The Mets in this deal actually do not give up much. Uh, They trade Tommy Hunter, who was fairly effective, but he was placed on a 60-day IL back in June. And they trade minor league catcher Matt Dyer. So that's not much, really, to trade for Rich Hill when you consider he's got a 3.80 ERA for his career. And despite being in his 17th season, he has a he had a 3.87 ERA with the Rays this year. He has not had an ERA above four since 2013. It has been eight years. Uh, over the course of his career, he has only had, let's see, one, two, well, early on in his career, not great, but really, he has not had an ERA above four since 2013. He had an ERA that was insane, above nine in 10 games in 2005 in his rookie year, 
a little above four in 2006, you know, a little under four in 2007, a little above four in 2008, well above four, in, oh, nearly eight in 14 games in 2009, and had the one, he had some injury issues. He had a 6.28 in 2013. He has not had an ERA above four over the last eight seasons. So remarkable. Uh, and that's with a lot of different teams, too. He is on his, with the Mets, he's on his 11th team. His 11th team, which is insane. Uh, so it's remarkable. It's 17 years still doing it. He has a 603 career win percentage, only 73 wins, but you also consider that out of 312 games pitched, he's only started 184. Uh, over a thousand innings for his career, done a lot of remarkable things. Helped take the Dodgers to the World Series in consecutive years in 2017 and 18. Did some good things uh, with the Cubs, Boston, Oakland. Uh, think about it: Boston, Dodgers, Cubs, Twins. Now the Mets, Rays, A's, Cleveland, uh, Angels, Yankees, and Orioles. Uh, so. Uh, as for his first outing with the Mets, he got an ovation. I, I guess they don't really know when Carrasco and or Syndergaard will be back. Maybe I'm guessing that's why they made this deal. Uh, he went f five innings, gave up three earned, five hits, two walks, struck out one. Got a no decision. The uh, Got a no decision in that ballgame. But a good addition, definitely, to the Mets roster. Good addition to their rotation. If and when they reach the postseason, which it looks like they should, considering it looks like the rest of the NL East, uh, surprisingly to uh, me a few months ago, because I thought the NL East was going to be the best division, looks like most of the NL East, besides the Mets, is going to be trading off some of their assets, including the Atlanta Braves. Look like they will be sellers for the rest of the year. But Rich Hill, if and when the Mets get to the playoffs this year, should be a great, if not a, a like a fourth starter, maybe a really good middle reliever for them. I don't I don't really know. He could be a rental, but that is a good deal for the Mets. And you know what? Speaking about that, I I actually forgot to bring this up, but Cleveland. Uh, the Cleveland Indians will be changing their name to the Cleveland Guardians starting next season. So if you're a history buff, I'd recommend you know, buying some Cleveland Indians stuff right now. But um, I, really, it's something that's uh, really overdue. Um, I, I think the term Indians is not... Uh, it is racist, but I think it's more... The, the, the strange thing about that is I think it's more really historically inaccurate than the word, uh, than the word that was used by the Washington football team. Uh, that's, uh, I mean that, that that one was definitely derogatory. This is used in a derogatory sense, but really it's also just in historically inaccurate, because uh, Columbus thought he was, thought he was going to India. Thought he was going. That's where he thought he was. He and. That's why some of the islands, you know, they're, they're known as the West Indies. So uh, Hispaniola, which is Haiti, Dominican Republic, that island, uh, Cuba, maybe Puerto Rico as well, Bahamas, the Caribbean islands, known as the West Indies to, uh, 
and still kind of are. But after a little over 100 years, I think, Cleveland Indians will change their name to the Cleveland Guardians. So I uh, I heard about the, the new look, and they have a new logo as well. Um, as for the name, I'm not the biggest fan of the name, although obviously, look, that's not the point. It's clearly an improvement over the previous name. But I was hoping, I don't know. I mean, I think Cleveland Tribe could have worked out because they call them the Cleveland, because they call them the Tribe anyway, and that's not, you know, it's like how Atlanta has the Braves, Kansas City has, has the Chiefs. It's not necessarily anything derogatory, but they probably just wanted to steer clear of, of any Native American themes in general, which I understand. There were a few names that they used to have that I thought were actually pretty cool that they could have had. Um, as I look this up here, they... Yeah, they used to be... So, from 1894 through 1899, they were the Grand Rap... So, they were in Michigan. They were the Grand Rapids Rustlers. So, I feel like Cleveland Rustlers could have worked... In 1900, they were the Cleveland Lakeshores, which is not bad. 1901, they were the Cleveland Bluebirds, which I thought was kind of cute. I know they have the Blue Blue Jays exist, but first off, Bluebirds came first, and secondly, it is technically a different name. Third, again, it's kind of cute. There were the Cleveland Broncos in 1902, although here it's, it looks like it's spelled with an H, B-R-O-N-C-H-O-S. And then from 1903 through 1914, there were the Cleveland Naps, um, which I know... I could have, I think, sort of a, well, it's taken out of context. I think it could have a racial connotation, not having to do with Native Americans, but but different. But they were actually named the Cleveland Naps because of their player, Nap Lajoy, who, Napoleon Nap Lajoy, who was, if you don't know him, was one of, is it 28 players, I think, with 3,000 hits and was one of the first players to get it. He was a great ball player, Hall of Famer. And played for Cleveland for a long time. So that was their name for 12 years. And then in 1915, they became Cleveland Indians. And then, you know, there's they got rid of the logo a couple of years. I think it was, was it last year or two years ago. And, and so, you know, everything has changed there. Again, I'm not the huge, I'm not the biggest fan of the name itself. Obviously an improvement. I think they could have done a little different. Um, but I'm glad they're at least changing it. I will say the logo looks pretty cool because it kind of reminds me of it kind of reminds me of Major League. If you look at that logo, actually, I, I just want to take a look and yeah, it's pretty cool. It's got the, so if you haven't seen it, look up Cleveland Guardians logo. It's got a, a, a G on each side of a, of a baseball front and back and then a and then wings coming off the G and it looks it looks a lot like Major League to me, um, because if you uh, first off, watch the movie Major League. Yeah, so here it is. So Major League, first off, greatest baseball comedy of all time, probably the greatest sports com. Well, one of the greatest sports comedies of all time because Dodgeball is up there. There are a few of them, uh, but if you look at the logo from Major League, it's a baseball with a red mohawk, like uh, like like an actual like a red mohawk and sunglasses, and it looks fairly similar to the Cleveland Guardians logo. It's they're, By the way, they're named the Cleveland Guardians because of um, there's a statue on this bridge in Cleveland that I, that 
or a couple of statues that I think are supposed to be like the guardians of Cleveland. I th I don't know. I think they could have. I think they could have gone a little differently with the name. I think my dad said the Cleveland Rocks would have been a great name. I don't know. I liked uh, Cleveland Drew Carey's wouldn't have been a bad one. I don't know. Uh, but glad they're at least changing things there. One last thing in the baseball world I want to discuss, and that is that the Yankee bullpen had a god-awful weekend in Boston. They were seven games back going into the series. Thursday night, they had a 3-1 lead going to the bottom of the ninth at Fenway. They blew it before they could even get to the, the heart of the order. It was actually Kike Hernandez at the top of the order who hit a two-run double to tie the game at three apiece. They held a 3-3 lead, or excuse me, they held a 4-3 lead going to the bottom of the 10th, lost it, lost 5-4, Hunter Renfro hits a walk-off. Uh, so the bullpen, which had been, had incredible struggles this year already, they, I mean, there's that, the game that they blew before the All-Star break with Houston, there was the game in Minnesota where Aroldis Chapman allowed two homers in the ninth. Uh, they really imploded on Thursday. Friday they lost, but it was by a bigger score. I think it was 6-1 or 8-1. Or uh, it was a game they definitely deserved to lose. Saturday, they won. They came back and kind of made up for Thursday's game by coming back around 3 nothing in the 8th inning, scoring 4 in the 8th, with all but two outs, by the way, to defeat the Sox by a score of 4-3. to and Sunday, it looked like Sunday, it looked like was going to be their day to really get back into things. Domingo Herman had his best, probably his best start of the year. Yankees had a four nothing lead. Domingo Herman took a no hitter into the eighth inning, and then he gives up a leadoff double off the right field wall, that short right field wall in front of the in front of the bullpen at Fenway. By Alex Verdugo. So of course, you know, his pitch count's high. He's gone seven plus. His no hitter's gone. You figure he should, they should be able to get six outs. Uh, wow. Uh, Alex Verdugo is on second base. Herman gets pulled, and the Yankee bullpen just implodes. They give up five runs in the eighth inning. Uh, Herman get first off. Herman doesn't even get a shutout because he gets tagged for that one run. Uh, that that runner on second is credited to him. Gives up one run, one hit over seven plus, and gets a no decision. Red Sox score five in the eighth, win five four. The place was apparently going nuts. Uh, re really, no doubt for all the for all the health issues the Yankees have had and struggles with hitting at times. The last week plus has shown that the bullpen, even though apparently like a year or two ago this was supposed to be the best bullpen in baseball. This is a bullpen that has really struggled. Uh, that is by far their biggest issue going into the trade deadline. They actually traded away. That's how you know, I guess, they really want to get rid of their guys. They traded away Luis Sessa and Justin Wilson, I think it was to the Reds, for a player to be named later. A player to be named later. They trade away two of their biggest guys in the bullpen. So I don't know. They also trade for uh, Clay Holmes of the San Diego Padres, I believe. So that, that's a deal that I, I think they had to make. Uh, but And 
To be fair, as I record this, last night the Yankees pulled off a big win in Tampa. Tampa now two games back of the Red Sox in the American League East. Yankees are, I believe, eight and a half back at the moment. Make that nine games back of the Red Sox in the AL East. They probably should have been. Uh, they probably should have been at worst seven back coming out of that weekend. They are now nine back. Red Sox and Blue Jays were rained out last night. Meanwhile, the Yankees are, I believe, two and a half back of that wild card, so they're definitely in it. The Rays are also still in it. Red Sox fans, believe it or not, you're rooting for the Yankees this weekend uh, or this week in order to knock Tampa further into second place. But, I mean, there's still, it's still open down the stretch. Even Toronto. Toronto's only a game and a half behind the Yankees. And that would make them, I think, four back in the wild card. And it does. Makes them four back of Oakland for the second wild card. Seattle a game back. Yankees two and a half. Toronto four. Tampa four and a half up on Oakland for that first wild card spot. But honestly, if the Yankees and the Blue Jays chip away, each of those teams could still actually win the division. Um, Again, I don't know how the Red Sox continue to play so well after trading so many of their guys and somehow bringing back Alex Cora. Eventually, they have to come back down to earth. The Rays, meanwhile, make a lot more sense. But a big win for the Yankees... Makes a significant difference, and Araldis Chapman gets a save. They had a three nothing lead, uh, and they were then they were up four two, gave up a run, and then Chapman game came in the ninth. It looked like it was going to be another situation where the Yankees uh, just blow it, but they ultimately held on against the team that's in second place in the AL East, but would be in the lead in like two divisions and tied for the lead in another. So it'll be a very interesting stretch run in the American League East in particular. Wild card's going to be big. Just the fact that Seattle is actually one game out of the second wild card is remarkable this year. Uh, We will take a break, talk about the NFL in just a moment. Okay, NFL news. Aaron Rodgers, the story of the offseason, will reportedly play one more year in Green Bay then depart. Apparently that's how they're working out this contract, so he can leave after 2021. And regardless of what you think as a Packer fan, the good news for football fans is that Aaron Rodgers very likely will have many years to go, or at least two. So he has shown up to camp. He's going to play for Green Bay this year. And then, to quote Step Brothers, he's out 5000 So I... Just good news for football fans, and the good news for if you're a Packer fan is even if you want to criticize the management, the organization for how this has been handled, if you want to criticize Rodgers, the good news is that you have a chance to say goodbye to him as a player. You have a chance to give him a farewell tour. So I'm glad that's finally happening at least and that we're going to be able to see him to play. We're going to get some closure here. Meanwhile, the National Football League apparently is going to give games, well, 
they're going to force teams with COVID outbreaks, apparently, to can If they're forced to cancel, let me try this again. The NFL, if forced to cancel games due to COVID outbreaks, will force the, the team with the outbreak to forfeit. Now, I get for time's sake, that makes sense. But if you were going to initiate these guidelines, why didn't you do it last year? Because I feel like it's if you had if you had a full season last year, primarily without fans, and the vaccine didn't even exist yet, or at least not remotely to the level it does now, why why wouldn't you do this last year when, when COVID was far more widespread? The variants are more widespread now, but COVID itself, far more widespread in the United States in particular. I don't understand why you wait until now to do this. It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me that you'd wait until I don't get it. Maybe it's because they added another game. That's what I. That's my guess. I don't know. But if you were going to push back the NFL schedule anyway, then who? If you're going to push back the NFL schedule by a week anyway, and you shortened the preseason, then who really cares? I don't. I, I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. And as I report this, by the way. I will tell you, generally, I do not get, uh, generally, I turn off my phone when I do the podcast just so I can uh, have my head a little more clear, but apparently, Starling Marte has just been traded from the Marlins to the Oakland A's, excuse me, yes, from the Marlins to the Oakland A's in exchange for Jesus Luzardo. A pitcher for Oakland. The clubs have not confirmed it at this moment. Uh, a surprising deal in 91 games with the Marlins this year. He hit 287 uh, over the over the last two years. 287 with 11 homers and 38 RBIs. So uh, it's a strange, strange deal. Um, Marte getting traded yet again after last year when he was dealt from the Diamondbacks to the Marlins. Yeah, so let me clarify again. Usually I have my phone off during uh, while I record the podcast, but I'm supposed to have a meeting at some point today and I'm not really sure as to the time it kind of it may vary. Uh, so anyway, I have my phone on and I got this update. Jeff Passan, by the way, says that the Marlins are sending significant money with Marte to Oakland. Uh, so this is, although Marte has obviously struggled in his time with Miami, that is a pretty big deal. It's good for the Marlins, too, because they have a fairly strong young rotation, and this should only help them. Uh, the A's, meanwhile, are, I mentioned earlier, they're the second wild card at the moment. They're four and a half, I think it was, I think I said four and a half back of Tampa Bay and maybe could try to make a push for, I don't know, maybe could try to make a push for the division. So that's a big deal as the Oakland A's trade for Starling Marte. 
back to the topic at hand. Uh, we'll move on from from the NFL and the COVID outbreaks and, and that strange, strange rule. Uh, Michael Thomas out for, I think, anywhere between two and three months to start the regular season with an ankle injury. So he should be out uh, at least through the end of September, probably in the end of October. The Saints have apparently been working out Chris Hogan. Uh, he's 33, and he's obviously past his prime. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not ter- it's not a terrible idea. Again, the Saints are in a, re- a bit of a rebuilding mode because of Drew Brees' retirement and their uh, insane budgetary situation. Honestly, Michael Thomas, they can make the most of this, I think, because it might not be the end of the world, considering, well, one, considering he's going to be out for anywhere between probably four and eight games. But it might not be the end of the world considering Breeze retirement and the fact that Hill and or Winston, I don't know who their starter is at this point, Taysom Hill or Jameis Winston, regardless of who it is, those guys are going to need to adapt to being a starting quarterback. Hill is, each of those guys has had a, had a little time, well, Hill more so, had a little time last year when Breeze was injured, uh, but these guys are going to need to adapt uh, to being a starting court. One of them, unless we have a Donovan McNabb, Michael Vick, 2010 situation or 2009 situation when we're having, you know, guy one guy shuttles off after each play. But these guys are going to need to adapt, and it could be a blessing in disguise when you consider they'd probably have to use Michael Thomas as a crutch. It, it's not a very deep receiving core. Um, Traquan Smith is uh, not bad, but Michael Thomas is definitely the guy. Uh, it's kind of like Matt Stafford, honestly, might have gotten a little better after Calvin Johnson retired because he could pretty much throw to anyone. He didn't really rely on one person. He didn't have one safety valve. And sometimes you need that. Sometimes, sometimes you don't need a safety valve because ultimately you're a little better when you're out of your comfort zone. So it, it might actually work out for the Saints, and then they can adapt when he returns. We'll see what happens. Um, one last thing. This is mainly a football thing, but it's kind of, I mean, it has to do with all sports, but really it's a football thing. Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC in 2025. There are rumors apparently that Ohio State and Michigan are in talks with the SEC. I don't know. That's ridiculous. They're far from the southeast. I, I don't like this. I understand that the SEC is the best football conference in particular, but I, where does it end, really, if you keep if you keep going with this? Like 25, this is probably like 25 years ago that I think all this conference shifting happened. Uh, I know for a fact, I, I did, uh, when, I, when I was at Seton Hall, we, like my senior year, we had a class and we ha- where we ran an online sports publication, and I think like the last article I ever did was the evolution of football, in the evolution and de-evolution of football in the Big East. And part of that was Miami and Boston College both played football. The Big East no longer has a football conference. I mean, there are a couple of teams that are like FCS, but, but they are in separate conferences. So I think Villanova, so Villanova still has a football team. I think Butler might. Regardless, Miami and Boston College 
moved to the Big East. Miami won a couple of national championships while they were there. Boston College was really good. Later on, Big East still had a, the Big East still had a fairly good uh, football conference. Most of those teams went to the, a, the AAC, and then the Big East reformed back in 2013. Uh, but I, uh, th- that's where this all started, really, about 25 years ago, roughly, 25, 30 years ago, that all of this annoying conference shifting started. West Virginia is in the Big 12. That doesn't make sense. The closest team to West Virginia in the Big 12 is what? Like Kansas? It's not even close. Uh, what was it? Weren't they going to put weren't they going to put TCU in the Big East at some point? It's none of this makes sense. It doesn't make sense geographically. The Big 10 has 14 teams now. The Big 12 I think has 10 teams and now they'll have 8 after this. Uh, they went from the Pac uh, Pac 8 to the Pac 10 to the Pac 12. SEC's got everybody and they got all the dominant football teams. It's ridiculous, and it's just uh, it's just frustrating. And the the truth is, uh, look, the SEC is already dominant enough to keep teams like Coastal Carolina. I made this argument, I think, back in like uh, December and January, that a team like Coastal Carolina should have been in the college football playoff. If you go under, if you go undefeated, you should be in the playoff. And I thank God that they expanded the playoff, that they will expand the playoff starting next year. But even though the playoff is expanding. A monopoly is not good for college football or any, or any other collegiate sport. The the NCAA needs to regulate this somehow. You can't have the SEC just taking all the just taking all the powerful teams. Oklahoma and Texas, aside from maybe Nebraska, are probably the two most powerful members of the Big Twelve conference all time. The Red River. I mean. Look, if anything, I'm, I'm happy that the SEC is taking them both, and it's not going to be till 2025. But uh, and the fact that they took both ends of the Red River rivalry—try saying that five times fast—but uh, I, I, I don't. Monopolies are not good for college football. They're not good for college sports. It really does not make any sense. I don't know if maybe Texas, Texas as a as an organization, is just feeling more insecure after. Baylor became the first team since then Texas Western, now UTEP, to win college basketball national championship for the state of Texas. I don't know if that has to do with it. I don't know if it's just the the complete change after Mac Brown's departure. I don't know. I, I, maybe it has something to do with the baseball program. I don't know. It's really, it's very strange. I don't know what, I don't know really doesn't make sense. I will tell you that Texas and Oklahoma make more sense geographically speaking in the SEC than Missouri does because Missouri is not technically in the South. I I don't Missouri's not technically a southern state above the 3630. I mean so is Virginia too, but the, that's it it doesn't make much sense. So I don't know. It's the the whole thing is a mess. But uh, speaking of collegiate players, I'll go over. Let's do, let's go over the top five of the mock draft for Thursday. The NBA draft coming up this Thursday. Um, the NBA the NBA.com put together something. It was their mock draft. I'm. I'll, I'll just go over the top five. I think it's clear cut that Cade Cunningham out of OK State is going to go at number one. We go to the Detroit Pistons. 
that will be, he is the overwhelming favorite to get picked number one overall. Houston Rockets at two. Apparently, there's a chance they could go with Jalen Suggs. That's where I lean, especially after, I'm kind of biased because, or at least I'm a little more narrow-minded, I guess, when I, I'm more considerate of college players. I, I, I'm able to see college players more often than I am international players or just G League players. Um, so I might lean more towards Jalen Suggs because of what he did in the tournament. But the Houston Rockets reportedly are leaning toward Jalen Green, the guard of the G League. Uh, like Detroit, Houston has a lot of needs, a lot of positions to fill. I think I mentioned, I talked about this a few episodes ago, I think, where Detroit, think about it, earlier this year, Detroit had Andre Drummond, Blake Griffin, and Derrick Rose, and they traded all of those guys away to contenders. Uh, it, it's it's similar with Houston. They had to trade away James Harden and it, uh, Russell Westbrook. It goes, it goes on and on. So really anyone they can, really, with those teams, you got to pick the best player available. Cleveland Cavaliers at three apparently are likely to select Evan Mobley. It's a seven-foot center, which uh, these days is somehow a, a little short for a center, relatively speaking, I guess. Uh, he helped, however, he helped carry USC to the Elite Eight, and I don't remember the last time USC was that dominant a basketball program in Southern California. It's always UCLA. It's always UCLA football. US, excuse me, UCLA basketball. USC football. And even though UCLA made the run to the Final Four, USC marched all the way to the Elite Eight. And Evan Mobley's a good two-way player. Good player at both ends of the floor. And Cleveland is... We don't know what they're really going to do with Colin Sexton. Apparently there's a rumor he's on his way out. I heard a weird rumor that he was getting traded to the Knicks for, like, everything. So, I don't know. So, so really, especially if Sexton is heading out, they need... They need. They also just need to get the best player possible. Toronto Raptors at four. They're probably set up the best out of the five teams in the top five because the Raptors, even though they've been in a little bit of disarray since Kawhi left, they still have a lot of that core. Still have Pascal Siakam and Van Vliet, Saul, a lot of a lot of different guys with that team who are, were a great part of that championship core. Apparently, and they could make it the best here, they could go after Jalen Suggs, who is a great two-way player for Gonzaga, who helped bring them to the national championship game. He could hit that incredible half-court shot. He could help, regardless of what happens with Kyle Lowry, I think there were trade rumors with him too, very good facilitator who can also score. Toronto probably has it best out of all those teams. And then lastly, at five, the Orlando Magic reportedly will select, or at least according to NBA.com, likely to pick Scotty Barnes, who is another freshman like Jalen Suggs. Comes out of Florida State, bit of a point forward, needs who needs to build on defense a little bit, but really is probably able to. Needs to build a lot more with his shooting, and that's what Orlando is probably going to need the most, but that playmaking ability is going to be important for an Orlando Magic team that really has been in despair for a while. Probably, Look, I know they made the playoffs a few times with Aaron Gordon, but or the play-in at least, but 
they, they really have not been a power in the Eastern Conference since Dwight Howard left. So that's big. Wrap things up in just a moment with the NHL discussion. All right, let's talk about the NHL and NHL free agency and trades this past week. There's a lot to discuss. First off, maybe the biggest thing out of all of them. Actually, yeah, probably the biggest thing out of all of them. Marc-Andre Fleury reportedly traded to the Chicago Blackhawks for Mikhail Hakarainen. Um, it's not Sammy Hakarainen. Um, this deal doesn't make sense to me. It must be it must be a cap deal. And apparently, Marc-Andre Fleury found this out via Twitter. That's the report. So Marc-Andre Fleury, who got drafted, got drafted by the Vegas Golden Knights, if there was only one, if they went by number, Marc-Andre Fleury would have been the first player drafted, but you'd have to draft one player per team. But Fleury was the highlight of the expansion draft for Vegas. Helped carry them to the Stanley Cup final in 2018, their first season. First expansion team to reach the Stanley Cup final in their first year. Made the playoffs multiple times. Wins the Vezina this this year. Wins his first career Vezina this year. He won the Cup three times in Pittsburgh, and he played better hockey in Vegas than he did in Pittsburgh. I think I can, I think that's fair to say. I know he... I know he he, he again. He won in Pittsburgh. He played a lot more years in Pittsburgh, but he played so, so well in Vegas. Wins his first career Vezina after seventeen seasons. Wins his first individual award of any kind in the NHL after seventeen seasons. By the way, remember last year when the the Golden Knights traded for Robin Leonard in the middle of the year. Do you remember who they, where they got him from? It's the Chicago Blackhawks. So Vegas pretty much said, "Okay, you won the Vezina. We're, you're going to win the Vezina this year. We're going to trade for your replacement, and then later in the year, in a separate trade, we're going to trade you to that team for pretty much nothing." So I. It, wow, it's inc- really unfair to Mark Andre Fleury, who I think is, without a doubt, the best player in the in the short-lived so far history of this franchise, and may end up being their best player for a long time, or even though they have a great roster. I I, I really I do not get this deal, and again, I didn't really understand why Robin Leonard. And none of this really makes sense because I didn't understand why Robin Leonard left the Islanders in the first place. I or, or why the Islanders didn't negotiate with him, I don't believe. Why he signed with the Blackhawks when they had Crawford. Obviously, that's apparent now that he was suffering from injuries. His career came to an end. But I don't... I, this doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense, especially that, that Vegas could treat our Marc-Andre Fleury this way. Apparently his heart is in Vegas. I wouldn't be surprised if he hangs up his skates after this. If he hangs up his skates and pads after this, which is a shame because he 
based on the award he just won, just had the best year of his career. And if he has to retire after that, that's very unfortunate. And again, hockey is not as widely recognized, at least within the United States, as football is. But it would be kind of like Aaron Rodgers hanging up his uniform after winning MVP again this year. If it, God forbid, that had happened. So I, it, it's disappointing. It's a, and you know what? Mark Andre Fleury has been in the middle of madness before. We we remember a couple of years ago there was that tweet that I think it was his agent or his manager sent out where it was a where it was a photoshopped dagger going through Flurry. Um, I think it might have. I think the name DeBoer, as in their coach Peter DeVore, Peter DeVore, might have been on the the blade or something like that. That wasn't Flurry. That was his agent manager. I forget who it was. He he didn't do anything wrong for this organization. He did everything right, and it's disappointing that this is the way that he has to leave this team. Moving on here as we head across Canada, Zach Hyman will leave the Maple Leafs, and you know that's true when Kyle Dubas, their their Kyle Dubas, their general manager, has said that he will leave. He reportedly has a deal in place with the Edmonton Oilers worth anywhere between 5.1 and 5.5 million a year. Um, again, I don't know if offense is their biggest need or forward is their biggest need, Edmonton, but it does give them more depth and gives them better second, third, fourth line score, wherever they put him. Uh, although it it does allow Toronto more flexibility, I will say that, and it gives them an opportunity to. To, to spend on younger guys or, or really try to go out into the free agent market. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks, as we move toward the west coast of Canada, will buy out Jake Vertanen's contract after placing him on leave on May 1st following allegations of sexual misconduct. Unfortunate that this had to happen. Well, the that this buyout had to happen, but you know, I, I give the Canucks credit because some teams... I mean, look at the Houston Texans. Some teams might see a guy make a huge mistake, like a mistake from which you maybe can't come back, and kind of just let him go. Or by let him go, I mean keep him and just just let him do his thing. Um, but you know, Vancouver again. I don't know if that has. To, I don't know if this really has to do as much with the actual allegations as as whether it's incorporated with his contract, but give them credit. Meanwhile, the University of Michigan dominated the NHL draft this week. Defenseman Owen Power goes first to the Buffalo Sabres, uh, who also traded Sam Reinhart, by the way, traded him to the Florida Panthers for a prospect and a first-rounder, which is not a terrible return. It's a little surprising that they traded him because it seemed a lot more likely that Eichel was going to be the guy leaving, but I, I guess... Apparently, they they are willing to hold on to him. That's what they have said. Uh, Buffalo, again, with a lot of needs, they have not reached the playoffs in, I believe, 10 years now. Uh, Owen Power goes first to Buffalo. They could use a strong defenseman to pair up with... Uh, uh, to, to pair up with uh, a, few, a few different guys. I don't know. I But uh, Matthew Beniers, that's how you pronounce that, center going second to the Seattle Kraken, another guy from Michigan, Kent Johnson is a center, also from Michigan. He goes fifth to Columbus. Uh, so Seattle gets a dominant two-way center. 
early on in the draft. Columbus gets a much-needed player. Maybe maybe one of the big, the cooler stories of the draft was that the Devils draft Luke Hughes, a defenseman. They draft him at fourth overall, and he will join his brother Jack. So now, three Hughes brothers are in the NHL. Jack Hughes and Luke Hughes with the Devils. Quinn Hughes, a defenseman for Vancouver, who won the Calder Trophy. And first off... I'd have to imagine, you could speculate here, like the Stahl brothers, you're going to try to team everybody up. But if there's any inclination from Jack Hughes' talent, and especially from Quinn's talent, considering this guy's a defenseman, the Devils are in good straights, or in good, or in good should be in a good mood. Especially because I, Seattle went out and took Nathan Bastion in the draft, whereas I thought maybe they were going to take Will Butcher. So the defensive core just got a lot better. Across the Hudson River, the Rangers make a couple of big moves. They trade Pavel Buchnevich for Sammy Blay in a second-round pick. I don't get this deal. The only way I really understand, for the Rangers at least, um, for St. Louis, I think it's a very good deal. If you are... The Rangers, I think the only way this deal makes sense is if they are actually freeing up space for Jack Eichel, which is the rumor. But then again, Pavel Buchnevich really, really, the guy's got a great slap shot, a great two-way player, uh, strong at the front of the net, good shooter. I really, do, uh, good on the power play. I really don't understand this move for a guy who's developed so much in the last couple of years uh, with Artemi Panarin, with Chris Kreider. I, it doesn't make sense. He is definitely better than Sammy Blay. And again, Sammy Blay is a fine player, was a key piece of the Blues Stanley Cup run, but Sammy Blay in a second rounder is not enough for the Rangers to trade away Pavel Buchnevich. He's one of the guys you might you could argue maybe they shouldn't have traded for, for a lot of different things, for many different packages. If anything, there was a... As soon as I heard Pavel Buchnevich was getting traded to the Rangers, I figured Tarasenko should be in that deal because Vladimir Tarasenko, even though he's had a couple of shoulder surgeries, is still, I think, one of the more underrated yet dominant players in the league. He's a he's got great hands. He's a very skilled forward, um, great puck handler. Um, if anything, I figured you'd take a chance on Tarasenko. Again, I still wouldn't think that was a good deal for the Rangers anyway, but I don't I don't get that deal. Uh, this is a lateral move for them. If it is to free up cap space for Jack Eichel, um, and I don't th- I don't really think he'd fit fit into their system that well necessarily. I, I don't think he's a guy they really need. I think they probably need someone more like a fourth line center, somebody like that, who they did get. I'll mention that in a second. But if, if, if this is to free up cap space for Jack Eichel, then pull the trigger on, on him as soon as possible. Make that deal ASAP. Uh, otherwise, I really I don't get this deal. It doesn't make sense. One of the, the strange early moves in the tenure of Chris Drury as president and GM. Although a good move he did make, after trading for Barclay, Barclay Goodrow for essentially nothing, they signed him to a six-year deal he is the guy they have needed for a long time. I have said, I said, I think a few years ago, 
when Matt Cullen was big with the Pittsburgh Penguins and helped them win the Stanley Cup in consecutive years, I said that he was the guy, and he actually played for the Rangers briefly, he was the guy that the Rangers probably really needed. You need a fourth-line center who can win face-offs, maybe kill penalties, and really be a force in the locker room, a guy who's won the Stanley Cup before. And that's exactly what you get in Barclay Goodrow. The difference between Barclay Goodrow and Matt Cullen, however, maybe Cullen was a bit, little better on the face-offs, but Goodrow... Uh, is a lot younger, a lot younger. And he also has experience with multiple teams. He had a lot of experience with the San Jose Sharks as well. So a good deal there. And they didn't spend too much on him, I don't believe. Speaking of too much money, though, the Blackhawks, not a bad signing. It's a good signing. They signed Seth Jones to, I believe it was an eight-year, $76 million deal. It might have, uh, I think that's what it was. That's too much money, first off. Um, He's a very good defenseman, but I think the Blackhawks need to continue to build through the draft and through their minor league system, especially after trading Duncan Keith, especially after Corey Crawford retiring. I don't know exactly if Fleury's going to report. It's a rebuilding time for the Blackhawks, despite getting a lot of really good young pieces like Alex DeBrinkett's, uh, Curry Doc, um, a lot of a lot of really good young players for the Blackhawks who helped build around that core of with Keith gone now Taze and Kane. Seth Jones is a fine player and will make a great addition to the Blackhawks, but I bet he gets bought out after six years. I kind of feel like it could be a Keith Yandel situation. Difference is, Seth Jones can play very well at both ends of the ice, but that's a lot of money for Seth Jones. It's a lot of money. And we're kind of seeing it so far where that hasn't worked out a lot for the Sharks with Eric Carlson and paying so much for him. I don't know. I We'll see. That, but that, that deal seems questionable to me. Meanwhile... Obviously, they signed Seth Jones to fill a void because after that, they trade Brent Seabrook to the Tampa Bay Lightning in exchange for Tyler Johnson and a second-round pick. Now, Tyler Johnson, I will say, that's not a terrible deal for the Blackhawks. Seabrook is a guy, again, they're breaking up the core. Johnson, I believe, is a little younger. He has He, he was a star forward and helped pretty much almost carried the lightning to the final back in 2015 had an insane postseason run especially the first round series against Detroit the conference final against the Rangers he had a really great run he's kind of regressed a little bit but he has transformed himself as a good third fourth line player in addition the lightning give the Blackhawks a second round pick not a bad deal for either team they kind of fit in a great spots Johnson is a guy who can help mentor these younger players and Seabrook is a guy who can help, uh, down the stretch of his career, really try to build the Lightning into yet another Stanley Cup winning team this season. Meanwhile, in a very strange deal, um, the Flyers trade Jakub Voracek to Columbus straight up for Cam Atkinson. I, I, I don't, I don't really, I, I mean. A couple of years ago, I probably would have said Vor the Columbus wins this deal easily, but I'd probably say it's about even now. Voracek has also regressed a little bit. Flyers are breaking up a little of their core. 
I don't, I don't know. I, I don't quite get this one. Flyers, considering the Flyers are the better team, I, I'd say they're, Atkinson could probably fit better into their system. I would say they're, they're bigger winners, but Voracek, still a good player. It's just what you put around him. That's a Columbus team that's really rebuilding, so I'm not sure there. Speaking, actually, going back to Blackhawks and their core breaking up, Nicholas Jomerson, a former Blackhawk and a member of, I believe, at least, at the very least, one, I want to say two of their Stanley Cup winning teams, retires after 14 seasons, a fine career, very strong defensive defenseman, and really the mark of a great hockey player because a few years ago he was playing, I think he was still with the Blackhawks, and he took a shot that hit him pretty much like on the inside part of the left knee, and he kind of just, he had to, not, not, not even limp, he had to crawl around the ice. He had to crawl around the ice. The, the refs didn't blow the play dead. They were playing the LA Kings. The Kings still had the puck. I think the Kings were on the power play. And Jalmerson is just trying to crawl to the front of the net. One, probably to block a shot, but two, just so he can get closer to the center of the play and get more attention so they can blow it dead. And if that isn't the mark of a hockey player, I don't know what is, aside from perhaps a number of missing teeth. Speaking of uh, old, older defenseman, Mark Stahl stays with the Detroit Red Wings with a one-year deal is reliable for them. Another team that really is in the midst of a rebuild. Uh, he was traded from the Rangers last year. Gabriel Landeskog. A couple a couple of guys here. There are a couple of guys here who it seemed did not have the faith of their clubs during this expansion draft. They were both left unprotected. Gabriel Landeskog, surprisingly, after being left unprotected, signs an eight-year deal with the Colorado Avalanche remains their captain, and that's a big move. I did not see, I don't, I don't believe the financial aspect of it was released yet, but still remarkable that he will return, probably, aside from Nathan McKinnon, the best Avalanche player probably of the last seven or eight years, maybe decade, better part of a decade. Alex Ovechkin, meanwhile, also left unprotected. The rumor, apparently... The likelihood was it was likely that Seattle was not going to draft him because he was likely to work out with the deal with Washington as a free agent, and so really you're drafting you're just drafting him for the opportunity to sign him, which you could have done anyway without drafting him. He does sign a five-year deal worth well over nine million dollars a year with Washington, which I think is kind of fair considering he still plays at that level as a goal scorer he's never been a great, complete player. He can block some shots. He's a very good hitter. But for what he's got left in him, yeah, he's worth that much. Patrick Laine signs a one-year, $7.5 million deal with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Laine may be part of John Tortorella's departure. I mean, I've talked said the, said the words fitting into the system a couple times here. Patrick Laine has not fit into Columbus's system. I thought that Laine for Pierre-Luc Dubois was going to be a big win for Columbus. But, you know, if you're John Tortorelli, you're a guy who loves players who can block a lot of shots. And Patrick Laine is not that. Patrick Laine is a scorer. Pierre-Luc Dubois fit better into the Winnipeg 
system where he can play at both ends of the ice. And Patrick Lyonet couldn't really adapt to John Tortorella's style of hockey. We'll see if they can sort of tailor this next this next generation of Blue Jackets, this next generation of, of Blue Jacket learning more to his style of hockey. He gets seven and a half. I like that Columbus only signed into one year. They're not getting... They're not taking a big risk there. They're, they're, they want to wait before they can make a long-term commitment and see if he really can mesh with the organization in general. And then the last thing, Braden Holtby signs a one-year deal worth only $2 million with the Dallas Stars. I think that kudos to the Stars for getting such a thrifty deal. I understand that that Holtby was not... Uh, Holby really was not the guy in Vancouver. Thatcher Demko ended up being the guy and ended up making a big difference for them in the bubble. Holby didn't play up to his contract after departing Washington. I still don't really understand why Washington let him go after he helped them hoist the Stanley Cup for the first time in their history. But this is kind of like Ben Bishop, I guess. He, you, you're just hoping you're a Stars fan that it works out differently but he has an opportunity to be a number one goaltender again for a team that almost made the playoffs last year. I, I, I mentioned this a few times. Dallas had a better record than Montreal, who made it all the way to the Stanley Cup final. But the way the divisions worked this year with Canada and everything shut, being shut down, uh, they didn't end up making it. But if they still have that in them, uh, if they still have that core, Braden Holtby could be really could make a run for comeback player of the year. Well, it could be the, I, that's not an official award for the NHL, but really could be the NHL's comeback player of the year, unofficially speaking. Well, that does it for us for this episode. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening, and see you again soon.